0: Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey, folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show.
1: Alright, folks, welcome to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Werewolf the Apocalypse. Today's book is going to be Henge Yokai, The Shapeshifters of the East. Um, with me today is going to be Mike and myself being DJ. I'm sorry, Mike, I stole your thunder. Introduce yourself. <laughs> I'm Mike, still just Mike. <laughs> still just Mike. All right, folks, so you get a double whammy here because we're going to be as unfiltered as possible. It may or may not become chaotic because Mike and I have some words to share about this book. Um, Fortunately, you get it raw as we did before, and for those of you who were able to listen to our deep dive of Kindred of the East, you could also get my insights regarding how I feel about this book as well. But as always, we like to start off with our intro story because we feel that they're written for a reason. And we actually think this one's pretty good, or at least I do. Mike, would you be able to tell us about the intro story itself?
0: Yeah, the intro story is, is uh, pretty straightforward, right? It gives the sensation of the opening to maybe a fantasy film, maybe a martial arts flick you don't quite know. Um, and it does uh, kind of cut itself off before you have to decide, right? But We got a, a young fellow who is, the narrator just tells us is a stargazer particular tribe of Garu, um, and he's carrying around a super special package. He thinks he's sneaky, right? Soon quickly discovers that he is not, um, and that's how we get introduced to some different varieties of Henge Yokai um, at a site that is either currently still special, at least uh, figuratively, in, in like in principle, um, but it has been laid waste right due to the ravages of the years um and I think it's a real good, fast jumping off point um to put your mind in the right place
1: for for what you're about to get out of this book right but is there anything particular about that uh, intro story that kind of caught your attention about it
0: um well, so I was surprised by reading it, but less surprised once I got deeper into the text. Right? You have a let me see. You have a ratkin, a tiger, a bastet. Um, you have a. Uh, there wasn't a a, a a snake a snake man there. Um, what I'll say was I'll say that what stood out to me was the the level of cooperation between all of these different changing breeds. Right? That I would never have expected. Um in a in a werewolf mm-hmm. the apocalypse book from from a, a Western setting. Um and they had this this unity of purpose and this uh clarity of what their mission was. And they were should I, I mean, should I tell them why they were there, DJ? Is that a spoiler or
1: No, go ahead. I mean, <laughs> if anything it adds to the story because <laughs> yes. this actually sets the groundwork for this type of stuff that we're gonna dive into, so Go for it!
0: Yeah, yeah. So they're they're there because they have been, and I know this sounds crazy, folks, but they have been trading uh, ownership or or custodial duty over mm. Cairn with a uh, with a group of Eastern vampires. Um, a while back, we we've we spoke about the Kindred of the East book, um, and the, this these group this group of shape changers just go, has a back and forth with some Kui Jin because the Jin jins are on the energy of the site, just like they do. Um, and so the whole, the whole setting is kind of, sort of a diplomatic exchange. Um, but you know, fight the worm where it dwells and where it breeds, Right. I would never have expected such a thing from, from servants of
1: Gaia. And yet for them, it seems procedural at least, you know, until a twist. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that's exactly what to kind of bring up as we lead into it. Um, the reason I say that is primarily because you're right. There you have the Stargazer who shows up and he's there to kind of bury um, an ancestor of his. So it's his ability to go ahead and do so. He has to. In fact, I should say his mandate, um, his duty. But this group, as you mentioned, this motley crew of different types of shapeshifters all gathered together, um, And it throws him off for a loop because he's never encountered it before. But what's more important is they pretty much grill him to make sure that he's worthy of even being there in the first place. Because he is a Westerner. And it kind of lets you know that they kind of think not so well of Westerners to begin with. It might just be that they feel that, I guess, the way that the book is currently painting them as ignorant, for lack of a better term. Right? You don't understand the type of duty we have. Go back, Westerner. This isn't for you. At least that's how it sounds like in the beginning. Um, As they further start to test him and they find out he should be here you start seeing where they're actually worrying. They don't want him to be here, not specifically because not only he's a Westerner or once he's tested himself that he should be there, but because they got that meeting, as you were mentioning with the Kuei Jin. They were like, hey, BTW, it's going to be five of us coming to this meeting and five of them. If we show up with more people, it's going to look a little bit askew and then we're going to break the treaty. And the only reason we've been going through with this is because these Kuei Jin actually believe in taking care of the Karen as well because they are siphoning the chi, but they at least know how to treat it right. So in this case, we do the trade-off every now and then. It reminds me <laughs> it reminds me of the, the border dance between India and that other state where it's like once a year, they do the dance-off between each other. They'll meet at the gates, <laughs> and then they just <laughs> pop off on each other, and they're like, all right, cool. Once a year, we get to witness it. But um, the twist in the end that you're mentioning is they're talking about it. They're like, hey, man, you should really go. And they're like, you know what? Too late. Uh, don't even bother leaving. They're like, why? Because it looks like they're here. And where we're six, they're seven. So it already seems like Rumble's about to go down. I yeah, have yeah. mixed feelings about that, too. I mean, I guess to kind of go with the story itself, I, I think you're right. I, I do think it was a nice intro story to give you an idea of what we're walking into. But I guess the way that it was written, I don't know, it feels a little bit sensationalized for a second. Because at what point
2: did that- th- Okay. It's valid
0: though. You know you why know, do you like it? You, you, I, I like it because it they give you a little bit of that cooperation out front, right? Like in a regular werewolf the apocalypse book, you never expect to see all these changing breeds on the same team. And the book later mm-hmm. explains to us why, right? They have a an organizational title for this kind of situation that it opens up on. Um mm-hmm. but then right after that, they hit you with the treachery from the Quay Jin, and it's like, just because we cooperate with one another and we have a whole different sense of community around here doesn't mean you should relax. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? And they give it to you at the very last moment of the opening story to tell you, you know, you still have to expect the unexpected. There's still tension in this region. It's just got
1: a different flavor. I agree. Um, you know, it's funny because I guess one of the things that I was remembering was as that group meets, they kind of do explain why they're together in the first place. They usually tell you, like, "Hey, don't anticipate us being more together than like for more than an evening. If we're lucky, we'll probably make it through a night, and then we're disbanding." Um, but we have a duty to perform, so here's where we are. And I think that kind of leads us now to like, you know, pretty much chapter one of the history of why the Quay, rather not the Quayjin. Even though at one point we did speak about them or we'll speak about them, but why the Henge Yokai um, kind of gathered together, right? So the Henge Yokai pretty much attend to the BC courts of the Emerald Mother, is what they consider each other, right? It's one just gigantic thing. Why? Because th- their story is, they treat Asia as the Middle Kingdom, or at least that's what they call it. And it's, it's a swath of it, ranging anywhere from Southeast Pacific Asia, all the way as far east um, as Japan, Korea, and otherwise. But with the story here, what we're taking a look at is why this kind of came to be, right? Um, They talk about the cooperation that's necessary and why they started building up on each other. But I think before we even get further than that, the creation story is, I think, it is a creation story, folks. But it's told from the perspective of the Far East myth. I would hate to call it the Asian myth because I don't think that qualifies as well. But it does take an interesting spin. And I guess the way that it layers up, it'll... Well, let's just go into it. Mike, could you tell us about the, the first age? Because they talk about the ages first and how this all came to be. Especially, I guess, with the Age of Dawning, which is the first spoke of the wheel.
0: Um, this is the this is the great big before time, right? This is that time you'll hear of uh in a Bastet book when they're, you know, talking about before we were all divided up into tribes or um in in a werewolf book, if they're talking about before we had auspices, the age of dawning is a time so far in the past that even the uh, great big frightening dragons, whose job it is to remember the history of everything, most of them can't reach back here. Right, this is um, prehistory, even for supernatural Gaia. things. Gaia. Yeah, right. And, and mo- most importantly, it's a time when how do I say um, spirit, mind and body are, are one. It's also the, mm-hmm. in a way uh, in one or two varieties of thought, um, a lot of the Hinge Yokai are trying to get back here, right? The age of dawning is like the, the factory default setting for these people's cosmology. It's the way they they think the world is at its
1: untouched best. <laughs> Right. And to kind of follow up with it or to kind of give a little bit of a layer, why this is also important is because they talk about, and as Mike was mentioning, this is when spiritualness and body were all one. Everything was all one. Gaia was all one. And in this state, Gaia to them was considered perfection. So Mm -hmm. knowing that perfection does exist meant that they know that they could strive towards achieving perfection again, being that oneness. But as with all things, it can't always remain that way. And the reason why it can't remain that way is because even Gaia herself knew that something must change in order for the wheel to begin. So that brings us to our second age, right? And our second age is pretty much the age of 1,000 things. The age of 1,000 things is pretty much Gaia I'm sorry, like 10,000 things or more. <laughs> that, I was yeah. about to say, it's many thousand <laughs>
0: Ten thousand, many thousands 10, lots
1: of them. <laughs> <laughs> ten thousands? Yeah, it is the yeah. the age of ten thousand things. And the reason it is is because Kaya became well, Kaya, of course, being self-aware, decided that she was alone and it's time to go ahead and propagate the universe. And there's many creation stories that we've heard from many, you know, I think leading up to this this source book, we've spoken about how every um, shapeshifter or changing breed sees their creation story come into past. And this is when, you know, she starts actually placing those creatures, placing those beings into existence. Right? We start seeing the existence of the worm, the weaver, and the wild. And they are no different um, as they're being described here as we see them in Western uh, history. The only thing that seems a little bit different, though, is that they do speak about the Yomi. Right? At this the moment yomi. in time, I mean- they speak about the Yomi. mm Right? They speak about the Yomis as well as the Yama Kings and the Ministers of Heaven. So these creatures are the only ones, or these entities, I should say, more adeptly, are brought into this lore at this moment in time. Where typically in the Western culture, we probably would have seen a lot more involvement of them in later portions of the ages. Um, especially because it's a little bit post. These folks were already there. These entities were already waiting. The Ministers of Heaven already knew what the rule should have been. And the Yama Kings have already known what decay and corruption had been before it even begun anything else. Why? Because everything has a place, or at least that's what they're trying to kind of let us know. (laughs) I feel a little bit of a thing about that. I'll let you to you on it first, Mike, and then I'll, I'll chime in on you.
0: So there's, there's this weird passiveness that make this, this particular entry a little difficult for me to understand. Right. Because in Mm. the, in, in the Western oriented books, you know, it, it speaks pretty clearly of like Gaia and the Triad, right? You got Worm, Wild, and Weaver. Here, there's like this I don't want to say lack of clarity, but it's it's spoken of almost like it's the universe just being itself, right? These factions uh among spiritual creatures pop up apropos of nothing. There isn't like a inciting event. It's just and to me, right, it sounds like worms caught in the whip, weaver's doing his thing. The the story we've heard a thousand times, but there's like a, a veil of mystery or a refusal to give, what am I saying, motivation or or purpose to why these things sort of happen? Is it, 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 it like, it's like they don't
1: care why they happen. It's that they happen that we need to remember. Am I making sense? That's exactly what I was about to get to, because it might not be, and in most cases, even when we take a look at certain parables that are being told, right, sometimes it's not the reason of why or how, it just is a matter of you to understand that it is. And in this case, the Yama Kings do exist, right? The August personage of heaven, or the great August personage, is the one who is the highest and the minister of heaven, and it is this one being we have to assume is on the side of light, or at least on the side of order, whereas the Yama Kings are on the side of corruption where are the worm mm-hmm. weaver and wild in the mix of this they are there but these entities are creations of them you know these are things that kind of were byproducts that were created as well with gaia if anything i think i liken it akin to remember the movie demon knight vaguely billy I, was, zane. I was a weep up yeah, uh, yeah it was tales the yeah. crimson movie billy zane and at one point or another billy zane's trying to capture william sadler And uh, he follows him in, and at one point, they tell you the creation story myth. So what they mentioned in the creation story myth there was that even before everything, there was the void and there was the darkness. And inside of the darkness, it wasn't empty. You had all these little critters, these little creature beings that just want to return the world back into darkness. That's kind of what I Mm imagine the Yama Kings being, right? There's these things that automatically know that the existence of life um, is not what it wants. It wants to go back to the void. Why? Because even the void does exist as something. So I think that's the reason why it's also brought into the fore here is to kind of explain to players that um, there is a reason behind why these forces do exist, but right now it's not worth noting, because it's the pursuit of at least understanding why you must stand up against it. Also to kind of go with it, we're talking about, during this period, since we did see that these Yama King and these Yomi were created, um, we, have our, we have our champions that are created as well. Our other changing breeds are brought into play. The August personage himself, for those of you who are familiar with Kuei Jin, actually bring in the Wanshan. And they are humans that were gifted uh, with immortality and strength. And this is what kind of led to them getting close to and closing off the Age of 10,000 things. Everything had a place. You had your heroes, you had your villains, or I should say your antagonists, your light versus your dark. And there was a balance up until we start moving up closer towards the Age of Legends. And the Age of Legends, I'll lead off with that one. The Age of Legends was the (laughs) Age of the True Gs. It was the age of everyone gets down to throw down uh, because it's what tested everyone else to let you know where the battle is really starting to take place, right? So we start seeing um, the Yomi and the Yama Kings being pushed back across the veil and into their own personal hell. No longer are they within this side of the realm. They're thrown further deep into their own abyss. And there's a lot of conversations other folks get half of with that. And we'll leave that for the Discord if the folks want to join us there. But they get locked into their places and now we start to push people away. This also happens to be where, as time eventually passes by, we see the Wan John actually get corrupted, uh, because yeah. things do influence their thoughts, right? Mike, what do you remember out of the Wan John getting corrupted versus like what you think might have happened?
0: Um, so the, I don't remember exactly why the Wan Chan get corrupted. I remember that they do right; they forget their purpose. That's how we end up getting Equation, and and their name changes, and they become untrustworthy i
2: guess um but i feel like
0: i don't know the thing that stands out to me is that the what is the unifying word i can use for the Hengeokai? i don't have one yet the shape changers um mm-hmm. kind of forget their purpose now was it or not forget their purpose but they get arrogant right there's a, a fall from Hubers here um Was it that the Wanjian somehow betrayed them to to bring out that fall? I can't, I can't
1: quite recall what it was. There was a betrayal because what ends up happening is where every other creature had a purpose to it, especially when it was those were creatures, every other shapeshifter had a purpose as to um, why would continue. And we'll get into that because the mandate actually lets you, for example, the Raven were to go ahead and take secrets um, as well as the Basset having their own thing. The werewolves being, of course, the, the, or rather the Garu in Western nation being the the champions. However, the mortals that were given immortality had a lot more power than people actually anticipated. They were actually able to draw chi from the environment themselves. They were beings unto their own rights, and they were champions because they were also the gatekeepers of the Yomi realms. They made sure to stand at the gate to make sure nothing ever happens. But much like in most mythologies, if you stand too close to corruption, corruption eventually starts taking over you. And uh, the whispers that eventually hit them, as we know in the Kuei Jin book or the Kindred Lee's book, is they start to recognize that they could just start taking power and feed off of it, off of human beings. Mm-hmm. And now they start becoming corrupted, right? Because they know that there's no limitation to the stuff that they could do. That's when they start becoming depraved and completely lose their perfect uh, purpose. And that's when they start creating the cracks and allowing the Yomi and the Yami Kings to escape what once was held back in check. Yeah, that temptation is kind of awful. <laughs> <laughs> that temptation is kind of awful. But I mean it sets up for a good story. Because yeah, uh, you know, the sure. next thing it actually brings us over to is actually the age of testing, which is the fourth age upon it. Now the fourth age is where we have the combination of like the war of rage and everything that occurred during that period in time. Um What are your highlights from the War of Age? Because I see your face starting to blow up. Yeah, so
0: I think this is the this is the part that I was I was kind of mixing up with the third age. So in the, in this age, the Wanjian that would become our Khoi Jin managed mm-hmm. to set the, uh, the tribes of the, the beast courts against one another, um, to kind of have them doing their own dirty work, like eating themselves from the inside out purely out of greed, purely because the, uh, the Wanjian are trying to get after the cairns, right? These places of spiritual power, but the beast courts are sitting on top of them all. Right. And so for them, their war of rage isn't so much about, um, you know, everybody needs to follow this one tribe and do what we say. And if you don't like it, uh, we're going to, we're going to come and take what you have. And then we'll have everything. Um, theirs is more of, uh, not, not remembering to trust your brother, right? Go into these situations with, with best intentions,
1: recognizing that we have a shared
0: purpose. This is when the, uh, the beast courts
1: fail in, in that respect right and fail they do and the reason why it is known as the age of testing is because uh everyone got tested everyone at one point yeah. had to go ahead and fall under the scrutiny of the greater beings above um even the henge yokai fully admit that they failed mm-hmm. why because you're right the the wanjian ended up going ahead and actually manipulating a lot of situations because they knew that at one point or another eyes were going to turn to them for all the stuff that they were doing so to keep them busy for a bit they t- had a lot of words being thrown around to throw it towards the Okuma, right? And the Okuma actually happened to be um, their reference for the Graw. Yep. And and during that period in time, how they trick them, Mike, do you remember how they tricked them into, uh, into getting after them?
0: Um, I think it was just paranoia and suspicion, right? The the Okuma, I want to say they like retreat to the mountains or whatever. And everybody's like, what are they doing? They, they must be plotting against us. And they gang up on the bears for no reason other
1: than that the bears didn't want to fight. You're a thousand percent correct. It's exactly that <laughs> because it, it, it's crazy, right? Because you think about it and we know on the Western side to also bring it into perspective, folks, it's not that they don't exist in the same universe. They have to. In fact, they even speak about it in this book that they're very well aware of what ended up happening in the West with their, their brothers and their kindred and those that they considered cousins. They also saw the same thing happen to the girl in the West. But in the east, you're exactly right. They got tricked into thinking if these, you know, these Okuma were heading back into the into retreat mode, then obviously if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is protecting, you know, these realms and or per- uh, fulfilling their purpose, then they must be abandoning their purpose. And if they're abandoning their purpose, then they must be tools of the Yomi Kings, and if they're tools of the Yomi Kings, well, they got to go. Um, right, but little did they know. Um, and or they did understand that with every age comes a lesson and with this age they came to recognize a couple of things one killing the Okuma was probably not the best idea they lost something important to them and they recognized that paranoia does not work out so well in that favor but another thing they also recognized was this was also the age of where we see people just go gung-ho into battle because when they started getting tested by everyone they started saying well you know what we could just go straight into the Yomi kingdom and do what we got to do to take care of everything and they're like, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't think you want to do this. You know, the spirits were telling them this might not be what you want to do because there's no possible. And they're like, no, no, no. We got this. Buckle up. Yeah. Straight up X-Force from Deadpool. Jump into battle. <laughs> and jump into battle they did only to find out they were facing waves upon waves upon waves of Bakemono, um, which are like, almost like the equivalent of Pomori, you would almost say on the Western front. Um, twisted demons. I saw that. And that, right? And that's really no, 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 I'm saying. That's out. what I
0: read them as, yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what ended yeah. up happening. They learned humility as well, that they can't do this alone. Um, and that's the reason why they started banding together. This is where we actually start seeing a more of a gelling or solidification of the beast courts kind of like pulling together to make sure that they understand that considering what their enemy is, considering what it is that they stand against, um, you know, this brings us moving forward into the next cycle, which is the age of sorrow. Which is currently the sixth age, or rather I'm sorry, the age of shadows, which is the fifth age. So so far we've gone through five ages here. And it's the current times. What could you tell us about the Age of Shadows, Mike?
0: Uh, the, the the flavor is very familiar, right? Those of us who read Apocalypse, everything's bad. Everything is getting worse. We got enemies on side, but that just means we have a target-rich environment. Um, and you know, our our beast courts are um, organized. They have a very clear sense of purpose. They have their laws, um, and they are burdened, right, by a sense of anticipation and despair uh, of what the six age is. But almost guaranteed to be, but, and this is one of the things that I really, really like about this book. Um, they have kind of accepted the, the awful that they know is coming, um, because they believe they have to, to go through it, to conquer it. Right. Um, and so their whole daily posture is, um, the reason that we fight is because we know that we have to endure what is to come. And at least for me personally, DJ, you might, you know, feel differently about this. I like that posture a lot better than, you know, we know it's all going to end. So let's die like heroes, mm-hmm. which is how apocalypse feels to me. This, this age of shadows feels like a time when they say, okay, we're getting ready. Got to pack a pack of lunch, but there is something on the other side of this fight.
1: Right. This is also one of the fundamental differences, as Mike was mentioning, because they know that their version of the apocalypse has to come. There is no way around it. It's not the end of the world. It's a cycle because the sixth cycle, uh, which we'll talk about shortly, is a cycle in which they know is going to be ruled by the Yama Kings. I mean, it's their turn to rule, right? Light had its ability to go ahead and do so and rule in. instead. Now the darkness and at one point must do so as well. As you mentioned, there is a difference because it isn't the end. They're not looking to go out in a blaze of glory. They're looking to make sure that they're still around during this Age of Sorrow to be able to maneuver themselves through it. In fact, a lot of the stuff that's happening in the current age are a lot of people discussing whether or not they should just accelerate it into the Age of Sorrow because the sooner we start it, the sooner we can get over with it, right? So Mm -hmm. much like in Werewolf, this is a fundamental difference than when we take a look at Western... Um the Western Garu is because you know, they're looking at an apocalypse and they're trying to stave it off, or they're willing to die in a, a blaze of glory to go ahead and uh, do their part in it. But here they know it's coming, as you mentioned. So what do we do about this? Do we push forward and, and try getting it through it and just go like, listen, if we gotta do it, just rip off the band-aid, let's go, let's keep moving. Or do we do our part and just know that eventually it will come and those that are currently warriors do their portion. Their next kin will do the same. Their next kin will do the same generation to generation. You know, and that kind of brings us into the Age of Sorrow, um, which is yet to come. So the Sixth Age, as we were mentioning, is the age in which darkness will prevail. It is written that, of course, the Yama Kings will take over for a set amount of time. Um, They intend on ruling, with the only difference being that even though they are mandated to rule, that they wish to stop the wheel. Because if the darkness is able to stop the wheel, then they could keep things stagnant and they will stay in darkness forever. Whereas the wheel, um, as we have spoken about, requires them to go in a cyclical manner. And this is the hope of every Eastern um, Henge Yokai, I should say, of every member of the court, of those that live in the Middle Kingdom, is the wheel must move forward. The same is also true for what we've seen so far in the Kindred of the East book, right? They anticipate this also being the case. Um, But I think this creation story or what they anticipate is almost like essential to each one of these books that came out in the year, of the Lotus. Do you think, you know, based off of that, that it, it this drives our story more across every splat book than it does specifically in this book as a Henge Yokai book or as a shifter book?
0: Uh, yeah, I do. I think it's got a really, really important role in the meta. Um, and a part of that is because I'm biased, right? The type of player I am. I feel like stories don't have to end. Um, and I know that I, I've, I've been told that that is a, a failing. I don't care. <laughs> and this this says to me, this says to me that you know Eastern shifters agree. They recognize that you, you know there's going to be a sixth age, right? But in a in a way that applies not just to them but to all of the world of darkness. They also mm-hmm. believe that there is something on the other side of the sixth age that is worth getting stronger for. So yeah, I think it's it's extremely significant. For canon across flat,
1: right? I uh, I'm a little mixed up about it because I could see both sides of the argument. On one end, I feel that having the sixth age kind of up, outside of the fact that it's quite obvious that you know we're we're playing in the Middle Kingdoms to begin with, that it gives its own setting and it actually gives you a shared reality. Unlike in uh, you know what we're talking about Gehenna, the Apocalypse, the Ascension, what have you, all these like end game. Um, scenarios that do happen in the western world everyone's kind of all racing towards the same thing. So it, mm-hmm. it's almost like you're, you're playing a game where you already know what the apocalypse is coming into and I think we discussed this in one of our ST circles but on that side I think it's cool but I also do think that it, I'm not sure if it does or doesn't fit I'm not sure if it does or doesn't fit within the Hangai Yokai itself and the only reason mm-hmm. I feel just a bit of slight conflict is because I feel since this is a very shared vision, the buy-in has to be that you understand that that you're not... This is a werewolf source book, but you're playing with so many other figures in it, right? Um, I think even when we take a look at the the introduction to this particular chapter itself, it talks about the fact that when you're playing Henge Yokai, they hope, the authors intended that you hope you have fun playing this type of setting. It is exotic to a degree, right? At least they label it as exotic. Mm, However, we're taking a look at the fact that you have this conglomerate of uh, eclectic shapeshifters all gathering together to go ahead and perform this. They say that you could also perform this action in the Western uh, setting, but if you do, it kind of loses a little bit of the spark, right? Because they've, wrote, they've written this with the intent of this being kind of uh, self-containing in and of itself. So that's where I kind of feel a little bit of, uh do uh, halves and halves, so to speak. Although I do agree more with what you say rather than my... Yeah,
0: I mean, so, man, we might have time to get to it, and I don't want to jump up and down on it too much. There is a little bit of, uh, like, arbitrary exoticism that I picked up on, on a, in a couple of different places in this book, but let's, let's let's get through the important stuff first, and I'll try to speak to that before we're done. Got it. <laughs> I just think
1: it's crazy. No it's all I'm saying. No, <laughs> no, nah, nah, you got it, you got it. I think uh, we should walk into, and this is probably a good one, because... Mike, you, the lawyer here, walk us through what's different, especially when it comes to the Beast Courts, because unlike Garu, who followed just the litany itself, we're looking at these shapeshifters, these sengyo Yokai, who follow the mandates of heaven. But what are the mandates that were given to them?
0: Okay, um, so just as a preface, right, um, the mandates are, in short, they are like a litany that is on top of the litany. Right. So there's there the Hingeyokai have all of this variety of of types, right? We have our the Garu that we talk about in the Western books all of the time, and within the Garu we have the several tribes. But then the Hingeyokai are several types for which they don't really tell us whether or not they're individual tribes within a given type. You know, you might be a Hakan was a werewolf from japan um, or a con we know that the con are one of several types of bastard because we have other books on that stuff there are kisune and kumo and naga and you get your, your details on all of these different varieties um, but the beast courts are not one particular type they are members of certain types of shape changer that have all agreed to follow the mandates right so the mandates due to an oath that you have sworn sit over the top of whatever your tribal um traditions are right again from from a western perspective you know you might be a glass walker but if you find yourself um somewhere in the middle kingdom uh you and you agree to serve in one of these sentai um which i guess we'll get to or for whatever reason you've sworn some oath to the Beast Courts, then the mandates are supposed to supersede the um, the litany that you you brought from your homeland. Anyway, um, do you want me to just 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 get, read, read them out, DJ, one by one, or like we do yeah. do with the Let's, let's start and
1: see. Let's start and see if any difference between each mandate versus litany that we've handled <sighs> before.
0: Well, no, wait, 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 and I think this is this is this is important because is it fair to compare them? Right, don't you think they I kinda think come from a different a different place?
1: Oh, they do, but our listeners might not know what that different place comes from.
0: Oh no, 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 I don't mean geographically. I mean so when you look at the mandates, it's like some it's like a like a constitution or something. You know? Might just throw yeah. it out there. Let's let's see what all we right, can get all through. All let's right. chew on it in real time. Okay. Um the first shirk not the tasks which have been given you. Um, the, the, the text specifically calls out this is the, the number one mandate and is also the one you use to kind of end around that thing about the mandate superseding. Um, mm-hmm. because among the tasks that have been given to you are the, uh, tribal traditions you were raised with. So if you need an excuse to do something that you feel compelled to do, um, because of uh, where you're from or what you believe in, that's not necessarily part of your mission here with the Beast Courts. This is your, this is your loophole.
1: <laughs> um, it's also kind of like one of the things that I, I found, right, uh, especially when it comes to that one, is uh, there's a statement in here rather there's a couple of sentences. When they go, in essence, the first mandate requires each changing breed of the courts to serve the mother in a manner which she intended. Right, So Gaia had declared it. Everyone has a purpose. So for the Garu, of the courts, they may not turn from the path of battling the worms. The Tengu, which are your Were-Raven, your Korax, may not neglect his duty to uncover the secrets of the enemy. No Long, which are your Mokole, may ever forget even the most painful of memories. Right? It's things like this that kind of hit. Because, to me, it tells you, you must at least remember what you are, and at least complete it without running away from it. Because I think... One of the things that we've kind of uncovered, especially like in certain tribe books where we're talking about like where it was in the beginning when we started covering first edition, um, is people have a tendency not to want to be what they were born to do. Right? That's why you have Ronan around. They're like, yo, I don't want to be part of this. I'm running. I might not have to deal with it. Um, Even to a certain degree, some creation of Metis. Because it is that you forget what it is that you were supposed to do and you abandon it in favor of your own evil, of your own personal uh, wants. Right, This is when you start turning away from the duty that has been given to you. And I think duty is what kind of binds them together because they all know their place. Or at least they all should know their place. And it should kind of help mitigate any type of variance or any types of folks that just want to move away from it. Which there's a reason for later why it works effectively here in this setting than in others. But that's how I took it anyway. Unless there's something a little bit more you want to add spice to well, no,
0: no. I mean, you, you, you highlight something good, right? Because the, the, I, I want to say the first, the first order or whatever of the litany mm-hmm. is Garu shall not mate with Garu. You mentioned Metis. And it's like the Hinge Yokai, their first mandate is kind of cutting to what the real point of that rule is. Don't forget why we're here. You have a reason to be. Um, and I think that the Garu could have done better with that, right? They got, real weird and prudish (laughs) to have the first law on the list of laws be don't fuck your cousin like you know this seems like somebody's working out personal issues Um, but no I agree with you 100%
1: (laughs) there is one stipulation that it mentions though is what if you don't have the ability to fight right what if you ended up with a Hawking who was frail of body if they're unable to fight does that mean that they're still shirking their ability in reality no um, even though they might have to be courtiers in court and or provide for their clan, or I should say their tribe, um, in a more proactive way or a different way, the effort is all that counts. So long as you're continuing with the effort, then you are fulfilling your task um, towards the first mandate itself. Um, the second one uh, is guard the wheel that it may turn. This one is interesting because it straight tells you, as we were mentioning before, that the the ages were of importance, right? We know that this wheel must turn at one point or another. But that means that you're, it's not that you'd be welcoming the apocalypse, you're welcoming in this case, you know, the Age of Sorrows, as much as it is that you must do your duty during that period in time to proceed forward with what was already mandated, what was predestined to be. I think <laughs> do you find this comparable to anything in the litany? Because to me, it almost feels like this is the the one mandate that just tells you, like, Everyone else is too busy trying to fight against the apocalypse instead of just saying, you know what we're here for, but not because of your duty, but as much as it is like your overall sense of existence is to make sure that, you know, these ages do come to pass, right? That it's not just the one thing. It might be more.
0: Uh, I mean, so there is a a mirror. Well, not a mirror. There is a direct comparison. I'm going to use the tool you gave me and compare it to mm-hmm. uh, combat the worm wherever it dwells and wherever it breeds, right? The mm-hmm. Hinge Yokai are saying it isn't really our job to focus on any one enemy so much as it is to be humble and protective of this cycle, this this karmic Soup that we all live in, right, we know some things are coming, and what 's important is that we put ourselves in a, a posture of recognizing our role and protecting this this thing that we feel holds the universe together um and this is, this is another one where I feel like they they take a posture that the garu probably could have or should have i don't i don't know how to really say that it's like a focusing it's clearer it's more purposeful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I could go with that. What about our next one? Um, presume not to instruct your cousin in his task. Um, yet, yet another lesson the government probably could have learned from. Um, it, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, folks. It's, um, respecting the purpose, right? That your fellow shifter has, um, as given by Gaia, um, and recognizing that despite what it might look like or feel like, um, Not only are they the ones responsible for doing the thing, but they and those that they come from have been doing it longer than you and through more adversity. And so you should humble yourself and hold your tongue or your hand. Right. When it comes time to make a decision, that's supposed to be their area. Right. You let them
1: carry that. Do you think the gut would agree with you? Fuck no!
0: <laughs> the get the get seem to believe that strength is the is the bottom line, and if they are stronger, they have the right to take over whatever
1: duties, um, you know, hints or rage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, now, the reason I bring that up and use the get as an example, right, is because now, it, obviously, you know, stereotypes and archetypes uh, help us kind of define the type of role play that a flavor of a specific tribe is supposed to bring or setting. And now we're taking a look at exactly that. This is one of the key differences between our Western and Eastern um, shifters of sorts. But but it's a hard pill to swallow in the beginning because, once again, this book is being introduced to us so far down the line. And we've been brought up with everything that happens, obviously, in the West, right? We're looking at the apocalypse version of the game, things that are happening with werewolf. And we see where might is right and where it is a boring um some players want to play Get or the Furies or what other tribe have you because they're so like singular in mind for what it is in terms of how they have to achieve it. But it's all done within the perspective of Garu number one. Hell yeah, brother, right? They're they're uh, they're macho man Randy He said <laughs> Right? there They're ready to go.
0: <laughs> but yeah, I'm here, uh, you know go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say you get the flavor that Like Garu, for the Garu, unity is a political tool. And for the Hinge Mm Yokai, it is really an ethic that these people live their lives according to. It seems a lot more personal, more serious to be unified and respectful to them.
1: Right, right. Um, I think that's, you know, that's pretty good to to kind of top off there because it does speak to it. It's the only thing as well, I think, that's going to keep your game in balance. Because at one point in time, you might go as, you know, the Garu in the group. You're like, you know what? This Were-Raven's just taking way too long. This tango's taking way too long to do something. I'm about to. And they're like, tut, tut, tut. we have this happening. And you're like, that's right. That's his field. <laughs> He's got to take care of that. I just got to let him mess up. So when he messes up, I'll make an example of him.
0: Right,
1: Hey, Hey, pull that road right from (laughs) under him so I can have his shit in my shit. (laughs) Right. Uh, The next mandate it brings us to is honor your territory in all things. Uh, I don't think we need to beat this one. This one's actually pretty self-explanatory considering how many times it's been written about shifter books. And it's pretty, you know, it is what it is. You know, don't shit where you eat. Uh, It is the most important thing to you because it's what you do grasp onto. So we won't hang along that one too much. However, our next one. Let mercy guide you in our august mother's court,
0: Mike. Yeah, yeah, that's got a, a very different flavor from "accept an honorable surrender," doesn't it? Right, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like for me, and you can you can tell me if you disagree, right? Uh mm-hmm. Accept an honorable surrender, which is the entry of the litany that sounds similar to this, says if I if somebody wins a fight. If two if one guy wins another in ritual combat and you still like that guy, you're still cool with it, go ahead and don't rip his throat out. But if all it takes is for you to consider a surrender a surrender dishonorable and you know that makes it okay or not a violation of the litany, it makes it like a real low impact rule in my view. Um Whereas it's pretty fucking clear what mercy is, right? When the mandates say, let mercy guide you in our august mother's court. If you are dealing with another shifter, recognize that whatever your conflict is, is still smaller than the enemy that you all share. Very clear, very
1: clean. What you think? Am I being too harsh? I don't think you're being too harsh, but I think that the, you know, the analogy between both of us is this, almost the same because I think we even read it at one point and we were going through one of the early werewolf books where we're talking about the mandate in terms of giving you know, the, trying not to kill your, your brother because there's only so few left of us and yeah. to, to kill one is just, it's a waste of a resource we need all the warriors we could get and they have that same thought too but as you mentioned it is spread across the other shifters but it's primarily because the court is seen as the unit, right? The, the emerald court is the unit it isn't just the Garu that are at it once again, but also there's a twist to it. The twist to it being is that many folks are debating, or at least they debate, whether or not even Westerners count as being part of the court. Do you offer mercy to someone who isn't of you? Well, I said it again. I couldn't quite hear you, DJ. Sure. Like, would you offer mercy to someone who isn't of you? So, if you had a Western Glass Walker just come into your territory. And uh, of course, you know, it's it's time to put up and die. Duel happens. Are you bound or do you think you would be bound to spare that uh that glass walker's life? Well, so in,
0: in practicality, it probably depends on the character I'm playing. Um, if I am interpreting this objectively, I feel that if I am a member of the beast courts, then the court is where I am. Right. It's um I, mm-hmm. I get it. I get it from going to church as a kid. Right. You, you bring the body of Christ with you is what they used to tell us. And so if I'm here, that means so is the August mother's court. And if I act like an animal or like something less than a merciful member of this mother, of the mother's court, then I am violating this rule, this mandate, um, in spirit, if not in the letter of the law. Because I think if you try okay. to have a discussion about does somebody have to swear their oath for me to give them mercy, you're, you're full of shit and you just want to kill somebody.
1: Mm-hmm. But you're... I like it because I can see exactly where you're coming from, but I'll play devil's advocate now because there are also folks that are in the court that would argue the opposite as well. Being our rules only exist for us. The reason we're so successful is because unless you're part of this crowd, there's no reason to have it apply to those that aren't even worthy of it. Right? So, like, for example, if you were taking a look at Samurai Society, or even, like, and at one point we could, you know, look into it. Bushido only exists for a certain amount of things. And yes, there is a level where you do have to protect those underneath you at some point or another. But at the same token, it wasn't unknown for Samurai to be like, well, it's time for me to go ahead and test my new sword. Uh, This Eta, which is, you know, a a non desirable person or person of lower rank, you know, the the worst rank that could have been in terms of a cast in Japan. Well, you gotta test it out. You stand right over there. But what are you talking about, Samurai? Whack! Well, it looks like my sword worked. As you saw, I was able to cut him directly in two. No one could say anything, and we walk away. And the reason why the Beyond reproach, is because the samurai were of that standing, whereas the Eta was not. And, you know, you see this as well when you have outside in. And we talked about the, the beginning story. This, uh, this, you know, stargazer walked in on this crew, and they looked at him, and they're like, why should we afford you anything, if at all? You're not of us, right? right? You hate us because you ain't us. And so we have the ability to go, like, should we offer you that mercy? Now, I fully agree with Mike as well. I, I like that role play that he would have. I could almost see my character almost having the same type of sentiment. But at the same token, this is also to kind of give our listeners an idea that for as peaceful as you may think and hunky dory as you might think that the Henge Yokai are, they're anything but. Right. One of the things that we will speak about is the fact that, and especially if you listen to us once again, uh, Rick regarding Dr. Wei, Jin, and Kimberly of the East, it's all about what you present yourself to be. Presentation and, and perception is amongst everything. So if the presentation is, we are but one unit, we are but one unit, then we should be fine. And it could be argued both ways. If I represent my unit, then I'll act as does. but at the same token, I could also make the argument that my unit is my court, and if you're not of my court, then the rules don't apply to you. So that's a that's a good one for debate. That's also a really good one to kind of put into play, especially um, for story hooks as well as role playing. To see, you know, for those of you who do play and or run Henge Yokai games, uh, I think that's one of the cool story hooks I would use to determine and see where someone kind of move in one direction or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, that, really that, a load bearing pivot point. <laughs> right um i think we could probably hit two of these at the same time honor your ancestors and your elders along with honor the packs of the spirit world what do you think
0: um it's just another you know flashing neon sign right about the, the difference in orientation of the hinge yokai and the garu um they are about community in a way that is outward facing Right. Recognizing the impact that they can have on those who are not in a position of as much strength as they are or on those who might be negatively affected by their carelessness. Right. An elder who's not quite as spry as they once were, but is full of all the wisdom of their experience or a spirit that might have made a pact with your family some number of generations ago. In in either of these cases, you got to recognize you know, you're a powerful young member of, of one of these beast courts today, but you may be something different tomorrow and so may somebody that you love. And you have to recognize that the, the, the weight, the gravity of your your position. Um, and I think it's uh, to, once again, somebody should mail the uh, somebody should mail the guy with the mandates in, in, on a letterhead.
1: Man, you know they just tear it up. It'd be like a bill and they'd be like, first notice, they're like, and he's <laughs> the last notice! <laughs> <laughs> and they just chuck it. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, Honor Packs with the beast, world, the Spirit World, I'm sorry, uh, I do think it's kind of important, especially for the Henge Yokai and especially in this book. And I'll give my thoughts after first, but I want to know what you know, Mike. What do you think in terms of the difference in terms of how our henge yokai our shifters or even the folks that you know inhabit this middle kingdom treat the umbra or the other side of the veil versus our western counterparts?
0: Um I I didn't have a I didn't have a difference that really stood out a lot to me, or at least not one that I can remember. Um I just know that these these guys really uh, how do I say that? Um they're they're a lot more focused or at least more explicitly overtly focused on the fact that they are they are beings of multiple parts right not just spirit not just animal not just uh some part human they try to pay respect to to all three and i I guess that might
2: take greater significance um when they're when they're in the umber
1: Mm -hmm.
2: i think hmm.
1: Maybe it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's a bias, but it's probably because of the way it's kind of written that I feel that this gets fleshed out a little bit more. Actually, you know what? It's a better way to put it this way. I feel that the parables that they tell in this story add a little bit more flash than the stuff that we would have seen in the Western book. Mm-hmm. The reason I say it is because it's not that it hasn't brought up in in uh, our Western counterpart Garo, right? They're just have a place. We know that the spirits of certain A rock spirit, air wind spirit, you know, all those things have a a place and a purpose to go ahead and do something. But in terms of how it's normally written in you know, our regular werewolf books, we see that since might does make right, it is our ability to go ahead and either make a bargain if everything works out well with you, or uh, we will intimidate or subsume you into obedience, right? We will make sure that we are able to bind you, especially like if you're grabbing a fetish for a clave and bring it into effect. Whereas here, uh, the umbra means everything to the energy, the chi that flows around, um, that we won't get too much into because it's the same as you would, right? It's, it's essence um, that is flowing around is of importance to there. And it's limited because you have an overpopulation, not only human, but as well as shifters that do exist. They may seem small in comparison, um, at least the way kind of almost presented in this book, but it's really not because you might have a small contingent of one type of supernatural, which they call Shen versus another type of supernatural, versus another type of supernatural. And there's only so many places where they would be able to gather all this energy. And so there's a lot of travel moving back and forth between the Umbra, right? They speak about Mm -hmm. how the Umbra, especially like the Near Umbra, um, have both a yin and yang aspect to it, where the yang is just full of a, a location, full of constant war. Things are consistently moving. It's a good battleground for them to test themselves. Every now and then a Yama King might just join the battle just because it's interested in seeing what comes from it. Versus, of course, like the Yin world, um, which is everything death and decay, or at least entropy happening in the background. But it's not all that bad either, because you get to see, you know, what could come from it. Once again, it it tries to play off of the fact that it's not just a good and evil or a a good light side versus a bad dark side. As much as it is, every area in Yumbra has its place, and every shifter and or supernatural being that does walk through this um, must understand it in kind. You know, mm-hmm. and so like you can't ruin the the ecosystem kind of built in there, and that's why they, I think that honor this packs with the spirit world has a lot more significance here um, than it did anywhere else. But um, but yeah, I just wanted to briefly touch upon the umbrä there and its significance to other Henge yokai. However, we have about two more mandates left. Uh War not upon human nor beast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, This
0: one is exactly what it sounds like. Don't go to war. It's not worth it. What are you doing? You have a more specific purpose, blah, blah, blah. We're protectors. Um, but you know, for the, for the sake of clarity, the, the book calls out specifically, this has got, you know, shades of the, uh, the veil, right. Shades of the masquerade. Um, but again, the, the thing that I is like think is the defining characteristic of this book and the, these mandates, um the posture cuts more clearly to the point. We don't make war because campaigning against a whole other category of Gaia's creations is both beneath us and counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Right. So they don't say, you know, hide yourself from the mortals because the mortals are coming get us and we should be afraid. And blah, blah, blah. it's not really about that. They, they don't say, uh, that if you're seen in public, the prince will lop your head off for a violation of our traditions. It is about community and about why we are really here doing the stuff we do, you know. We we don't have time. It, war doesn't serve any of the goals that we have. Now there are some who would disagree, perhaps rightfully so. But I like the
1: posture of this mandate. I agree. Uh, there's really nothing us for me to add. Mike hit it on the head. As far as I'm concerned, regarding how it's looked upon, um, which leads us to our last one, which is let no let no one or nothing violate sacred places. Um, this one's self-explanatory. I think we even touched upon it when we were talking about the spirit world. There's only so many resources that are left, especially during this age of um, you know, this age of shadow, where we're about to get into the age of sorrow, and we're trying to fight for as many things that will give us an advantage over our enemy. Um, that being the case, once again, holding these places sacred gives it power, and at the same token, it does give us, I would say, light in another world, dark world. Um, that is why those mandates kind of like wrap up there. Anything else on the mandates that kind of struck you, Mike? Before we move on to our next topic, um, nah, not really.
0: They're they're nice and tight. They feel like the the final drafts of the litany. I, I dig them.
1: All right. So now we get to dun, 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 dun. who make up the shapeshifters of the East. Um, uh, I guess. Go ahead. I guess we could actually start with the Hawkins. Yeah, you want to yeah, give that, that one a shot, or do you want me to take it first? That, that,
0: I, don't, I don't really have a... I don't know what to say about the Haken there. you Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Alright, uh, I'll set it up and then you let me know what you think. So all the right, Haken right. are uh, kin to the Shadow Lords. Actually, one would almost assume that they were the same if it wasn't for the fact that the Haken view themselves a little bit more differently. They are very strict and view themselves as followers of the path of Bushido. They a Duty is everything to them. And they know exactly what's on the line when they have to go ahead and take it. Now, while they honor things in most cases, especially taking, you know, an outward approach to it in which they won't outward lie to you. It doesn't mean they don't omit anything because they still are shadow lords. They just have a very (laughs) interesting way of being able to enact their machinations. Um, But they are your pretty much, they are your Garu representation in the East.
0: Yeah, I I don't I don't no notes, right? I I dig it. I just I don't know. They're like the stargazers for me. They're they're off and over there and it's it makes me question what I'm supposed to do with them in this book that's supposed to be different, right? So super distinct from Garu traditions. Um but
1: sometimes I think in strokes that are too broad, so don't don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> you're not off, but you know, it's interesting because the way that you mentioned is you're You know, you're comparing them to stargazers when you're trying to figure out what purpose or where do they serve purpose. When we're taking a look at a regular, like, werewolf book, we're trying to hit every geographical section in terms of, like, what makes that tribe stronger, where it originates from versus where it moved. Because, obviously, cross-pollination and all that being what it is. But you're taking a look at one specific tribe, for lack of a better term, representing most of the Garu, if not all, within this particular Middle Kingdom court, right? This BC court of the, the Emerald Mother. What would you know? Why would they stand out above the others in a vacuum? Because obviously we have to treat this in a vacuum for what we currently are.
2: Um,
0: I don't know, man. I I feel like they should be they should be just Garu. They should be Garu who live in Japan. (laughs) But again, I'm I'm still holding my tongue about some of the. Arbitrary exoticism. I can't. I can't tell you why they stand out above the others.
1: No I, them, I, I mean, them. it's a bad thing. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. No, I get it. And the reason I say that is because uh, what makes them stand out a little bit is that they are actually, you know, like when you when you're watching something, they're when you're watching comedy, you always need the straight man, right? <laughs> Every someone has to be kooky, and you could allow that kookiness to happen, so long as there's a straight man in frame to bring everyone back to reality and have a grounding of why everything that looks zany is just that much funnier because the man is just not part of it because you have two zany people, it's just not going to work out. The <laughs> Hawkin I think, fill in that role, especially for the Shen that we encounter, right? Because they are the street men. They're the ones that do uphold the honor. They're the ones that, where every other supernatural that we're going to come across or every other shapeshifter has something that makes them unique, you'll come to recognize that they deviate wildly and they have to do specific things that wouldn't normally be seen as conventional, for lack of a better term. Whereas the Hakan are conventional, right? They they do have that sense of Bushido. They always carry their their show with them, which is their Wakazashi and katana. There's something about them that does bring a semblance of of um, not only honor but a uh, posterity, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what sets them apart. Because you're not wrong. Because you were saying like, what makes them different than anything else? But I think in light of what we're gonna come into next, so I'll let you take this one because I don't know you like bastet. Tell me about the Hakan <laughs> here versus elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah.
0: Um, so the thing, I guess the thing that the book book calls out about the con here that stand out to me is that they seem to be the only Bastet who've chosen to join, um, beast courts, right? Uh, I'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure, uh, forgive me for my ignorance of biology, but I'm pretty sure that tigers are not the only big cats on the Asian continent. Um, but the only, the only Bastet that have chosen to join the beast courts are the con, um, my assumption the the feeling I get um from their position in this in this book is that that is because their numbers have been so significantly uh diminished by well hunting right there are there are very few kind left, so they need allies they need a measure of safety and um if memory serves other than like their individual uh, like personal, uh, I want to say Horizon Realms, that's a mage term. Um, I forget what what the Bastet call them, but... Den Realms? Den Realms, thank you. Um, other than their personal Den Realms, the Bastet in general, and, and Khan, in, in this case, they don't even have that close of a connection to the spirit world, right? So if I'm a were-tiger from some part of Asia, I probably feel very alone outside the uh, loving embrace of the beast courts and so they 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 join their sentai and they they tend to be fists um and they you know they're not they're not just brutes right they're they're scholarly and charismatic um but there's there's no question who the who the muscle is when when a con walks into the room and i like that i like that very much
1: that's very much my style right right i see them more like the like uh the wandering warrior that has to redeem themselves because you know the opening story tells about how the tiger at one point, forgot who he was, right? Because <laughs> they talk about the tiger being ferocious and being able to, as as good of a ruler as it was, and as much power as it has, it could also be very indiscriminate in its rage and kill hundreds of people in a village or more. Uh, but you can't get upset at it, or you shouldn't, because it's just doing what a tiger should do, right? It's what it was bred to do. And in the story, you know, this king who was a weird tiger, you know, who was a con, views a tigress, and she did exactly what he did, but he gets upset at her and then chaos ensues in which you know at one point he he meets someone else and they tell him listen you, you done fucked up you chose man over tiger and now it's only a matter of time before all tigers are wiped out and you know by you know geographically speaking i should say most tigers have been wiped out if not all tigers from korea and as well as china and these are the last remaining ones and they always seem like this is their ability to fake penance um, and go out in a blaze of glory even though that's not exactly what we were talking about before but to them this is the one character that does want to make their own amends and show their worth for it yeah um, Yep. Kumo, go, ahead. go ahead the Kumo so your Kumo are your eastern analogous uh, eastern I'm not even going to try that word they're the same as your Anansi Right. So now we're taking a look at the Eastern version. Now, whereas there are three different facets to Anansi in terms of how they follow the weaver, the worm, and the wild, the Kumu here are known as goblet spiders. You know, the story goes that they know um, that they were worm-aspected to begin with because they are of destruction. Destruction is the most beautiful thing that could exist, but for a different reason than what you think. The reason why is because the way that the setting is also framed, they speak about the, the beauty of Yin and Yang. They speak about, you know, three siblings getting together, and at one point they're watching um, you know, the sister sibling brings in the two brother siblings, and they watch coitus happen between another one of their kin and uh, you know, a female. And when the spouses, you know, when they get together and they roll away, the sister goes, I'll give a prize, a room full of jade to whoever could give me the best outcome for what's going to happen um, with the mother who's about to birth. One of them goes, well, Obviously, this child's going to be the most perfect thing to ever exist. If the parents were already perfect to begin with, then they could only be that much better. And then the other brother goes, "Well, I could top that. I could tell you what's going to happen is what's going to come out of her womb is already perfect, but it has to prove itself. So it's going to chew itself out and eat itself out of her womb, mm. and then what comes out of it will be beautiful. Why? Because it's going to be the yang of having to create itself, the uh, the energy, the life that is coming in, as well as the entropy that comes from the destruction." of something that shouldn't be anymore, which happens to be its mother. And um, the sister sibling was, bing, you get it. And so these goblin spiders do follow an aspect of the worm um, and follow it in all things, right? Do they visit the BC courts? They do. Do they interact with them? Not really, because they have their own agenda to it. Right? The other thing that they do mention is they do have that tri-aspect where they follow both the weed, or rather, you know, the uh, wild, the worm, and the weaver. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's only in terms of how they achieve their goal towards that set entropy or destruction uh, in which they were bred to do the only thing i would probably say from my end is that because of their singular will i don't they're they're written more as antagonists than they are as playable characters
0: yeah yeah i was gonna say dj what do you think about this flavor because they it really seriously feels like they're saying okay it's henge yokai you can go ahead and put a black spiral in your pack. It's cool Right? Is this, you? You don't get that that flavor from the from the Kumo. Like, what's going on here?
1: Uh, I don't think you're wrong. I mean, are they playable characters? It's hey, it's your game. If you choose to run it, you're more than welcome to go ahead and do so as you wish. Right? The power of being able to run the game. However, I think that as they are written, um, they do fall as the in between. I don't see where you would be able to make deals with the Kumo because even they serve a purpose um, in the BC Quarter, I should say, in the Middle Kingdom. Uh, much the same way that Kuei Jin do, but I don't foresee yourself being able to play in a group for way too long. That's how I would kind of view it. It's not that they're black spiral like, let's just go batshit crazy and we're just gonna walk the spiral up and down and try to corrupt everyone as much as it is. You're you're definitely dealing with um with a character that will not mix well with most player groups if mm-hmm. the intent is to have a heroic journey. Right. If you want to play a game that may or may not have a downward spiral, then I can see where one or two Kumo in a group uh, might be able to help facilitate (laughs) the wheel turning a lot faster in that group. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: Uh, What we got next? Naga. Yes, Naga. Naga are our snake people. Um, Perhaps unsurprisingly, they are... um, uh, Assassins feels like I am diminishing them, but they're assassins. Um, and, uh, perhaps not so obviously they are, um, less welcome, like a, like a lesser among equals in some kind of weird way. That's tough for me to explain. Um, this doesn't like offend them either. They're just, I don't know how to say off and over there, right. Doing their own thing. Um, partially because they're killers, partially because they were nearly hunted to extinction. Um, during the War of Rage. And so they they give you this they give you the flavor of like a a rogue in a D party with sticky fingers. Right? Or or that Astomite in your uh, in your prince's domain w- whose motives you don't quite
1: trust. Yeah, go go ahead, DJ. I was about to say I align more with Astomite than I do with um with a rogue with sticky fingers. Because the reason why they exist as they do is because Gaia mandated it. At one point, you know, you have uh, the Great Snake, Vasani, just kind of chilling out there, Vasana. He's basking in the sun. He's doing his thing. Gaia comes on and he's like, hey, baby boy, wake up. And he's like, yo, what's up, Mom? He's like, listen, someone's gone astray. you got to do what you got to do, because I can't trust anyone else to do it. He's like, "Bet I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I would have done it for free if you just even blinked my way. Let me go ahead and take care of him. And lo and behold, obviously, you know, this entity takes care of it, and um, this is their duty, right? They are the judges. Uh, they are also the reason why you want to stick to the first mandate. As we were mentioning to you before, the first mandate is, do what you were set to do. If you stray too far off the path, it is the naga's responsibility to go ahead and, and set you right. But when they set you right, you're done, right? I think that's <laughs> the, the that's interesting thing about it. <laughs> they return you to the return. This is also cycle. the first introduction right 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 this is actually the first introduction to the naga because i don't think they've got in their book yet um and we'll review that a little bit later in which they'll go a little bit more in depth of how a Naga does operate but it's first introduced in this section right here um with the henge yokai and it is true you probably won't get too much use out of it in a pc group especially because um they're so rare to see I would probably use them more as an NPC. Um, But if they do end up becoming part of the group, you have to play the stealth game to the core. They even tell you that their human form um, happens to be the form mode of existence for obvious reasons, right? Even most of the work that they do is actually performed in their human knowing form than anything else. Yeah. But, I mean, that's all I got for Anaga now. I mean, I would like to go more into it when we go over their book. But for now, it's a good taste as to why they do exist within the Eastern Courts. Yeah. Judges, stabby, poisonous, secretive. Moving on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Nizumi, Mike. Your thoughts on Nazumi?
0: Um d- 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 are ninjas to your hawking samurai. Um they they have this concept of low war as opposed to high war, right? It's got very, very strong flavor of gorilla, right? Um the book also specifically calls out that they um in the before times are more commonly found, um, with the quote-unquote lower class people, all right, they exist in places where there isn't precisely a caste system, um, but in every society where there are human beings, there are haves and have-nots, and your, your Nozomi are wear rats right, so that, that tells you that they, um, they kind of fall into this gutter role, um,
1: am Do you I, find them anything unfair? different? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, the way that it's painted, right? That's why I want to ask. Do you find them any different than Rat King in terms of their origin as well? I shouldn't say origin. Let's say let's roll that back in terms of their purpose versus what they are in effect.
0: Um, not meaningfully, no. No, they, they also kind of re- they remind my belly of bone gnarz too, right? They Just to have these broad strokes of of underdogs, savages, people who kind of do what they got to do for the goal.
1: Uh, What what are you getting at? Right, because like the way it's written here, as they tell you, they exist because they are natural entropy, right? Even though they are of the wild, this is the closest thing you'll probably get to the worm in terms of a playable (laughs) character. Why? Because when there's overpopulation, they brought disease. They also were the ones to go ahead and eat food supplies just to make sure that you didn't get kept cities in check. And mm-hmm. so they always mm-hmm. did have a purpose. They were the plague bringers, but not the plague bringers in the sense of like, whenever we hear such a word, we think a negative connotation to it, as much as it is, it's an event that happens. They bring the plague with them. And in order to do so, they call the sizes of humanity, or they're the ones in the Imperium to do whatever was necessary. Um, you know, because they do serve that purpose and they run with the lowest of the low, they already accepted the fact that they are, of course, the antithesis of what our Hawken were. If mm-hmm. the Hawking are the face of our court um, and the right hand of the emperor, then you're probably taking a look hour our reference for those of you who aren't aware, then our, uh, our Nizumi, our Eastern Ratkin happens to be the underhand of the court. Uh, they too have a place to do it. All their skullduggery, um, what they end up employing to make the situations and or events happen in their favor is allowed by the court because it is part of who they are. And where the Hakan mate hate it, they have to respect it because that is that Nizumi's place to go ahead and do so. They would never sully themselves in such warfare, right? Uh, without it being in the fashion that it is. But the Nizumi, you do have a place. Um, you could definitely see them within your group as being your rogue. Here, I would definitely say they're your rogue with sticky fingers. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> uh, next, we have the Sama Vito. Uh, the Samebito are your um, Middle Kingdom version of the Rokea. Uh, what's interesting about them, in very short order, ends up being that a group of them, especially Goblin Sharks, which are pretty particular to the Japanese coast, um, at one point had decided, you know what, we see what our purpose was, which is to protect the waters. We keep moving and we have the time to go ahead and exist in tandem uh, to protect the waters, to fight against the worm. Um but unlike our Western cousins, who are bloodthirsty and have no like future, for lack of a better term, even though they should, they were spoken to by a dragon, by a Zonglong. And they told him, listen, you don't got to be this way. We could teach you how to do better. And this Rokea at the time, this, the initial Sanabito, was like, you know what? I am much more than what my brethren are. And he himself had instituted um, that he would follow the first mandates of the Emerald Court itself but also have his own mandates as well so that he could prove to them uh, that he is a better being. I think it's cool, but at the same token, I feel like this is the only way to kind of give purpose to a creature or shapeshifter that otherwise you would just be thinking of Pac-Man, right? (laughs) (laughs) big open shark mouth. What's going on today on the menu? (laughs) It's it's street sharks, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: street sharks. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you remember uh, the code of the Sensei mizushi
0: Um, I do not, but I gotta be. Uh, let me uh, give me uh, two ticks. I bet I can find it. Hold on. I
1: got you. I got you. I'll read them for oh, you. <laughs> let me know what you think about them. Right. <laughs> all right. So all on right. top of the mandates that do exist, this is a personal code of ethics that also and Bito kind of aspire to. Right. First one is attend the elders. You owe them all. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. We followed that in the mandate before. Respect your tribe members, and they honor you in return. Right? So far, Hmm. about the same thing, right? Third, dishonor is a mark of lower beings. What do you feel about that statement?
0: I feel like the Same Bito are the bougie cousins of the Rokea who think they're special because they moved to the suburbs. That's how I feel about that
1: statement. You ain't wrong. So far, so good, right? (laughs) That's the feeling I get. Uh, To go over the other ones, battle is always honorable. You have an outlet for what it is that you are meant to do. Uh, next if you are alive then you are still learning which is also true right because Mm -hmm. these creatures could last a very long time unless they're actually killed Um, lastly protect the territory that Tiandi and the dragon kings have given to you so the dragon kings and Tiandi of course being one of their totems that they follow uh, have been given the eastern waters to go ahead and watch over and so they protect the eastern um, you know theater of war the middle kingdom so to speak but I think you know that's pretty much it for the Silent Beetle Unless there's anything else that captures your mind, there.
0: Nah, nah. I, I would probably play a Samay Bito if I wasn't playing a con. No notes.
1: Okay, sounds fair. <laughs> sounds fair. Let's um, quickly move on to the next one. Yeah, Tango. Tango. Teng- <laughs> anything special about the mic?
0: Um. Well, okay. So they're your they're your uh, corax analog. Um, and without mm-hmm. like spending too much time on them, the thing that I appreciate about them most is somehow of all of the changing breeds here, it, I can include included, really, they are as close to what I expected from their Western counterparts as could possibly be. They are the intelligence department, and I mean that in the spy sense, not in the test sense. Um, They're the intelligence for the beast courts. They pass the information, they hide the stuff, they deceive the humans. Um, I wasn't surprised, which was
1: comforting somehow. What about you, DJ?
0: Anything else?
1: Um, No, I I fully agree. If anything, that analog between the Western and the Eastern one, they're pretty straightforward. Uh, I think it's almost the same. It's kind of hard to rewrite the story. The only thing that adds a little bit of flavor to it is because there's a lot of Eastern mythology that does include the Tengu. Um, they usually mix that in, right? Great swordsmen. Uh, they have really cool fighting moves, which there's like a cross X motion <laughs> that they get to do like two double attacks for. So, for the, those cane bros or like werewolf bros that we have out there, um, they have some pretty interesting maneuvers. But outside of it, yeah, it's pretty one straight for one for one. Um, the Zong Long, do you want to take a crack at them? Um
0: this is another one of those where you're gonna have to tell me what's supposed to be so different. Um the Zong Long, and my understanding is they take the leadership roles in the uh in the beast courts very often. So I guess that's a that's a relevant difference. You don't just run into a McCole every day in the West. Um, but other than that, you know, they're the dragons, they're the memory, they're pretty. Um, what am I what's supposed to be standing
1: out to me here, DJ? I don't think there's much outside of its own creation story, right? The there was five dragon clutches that were rather five dragon eggs, and the last one, of course, being Zanglong, and they were tasked with memory. And because that memory is strong, and they have to remember what came before and what is to come as well, this also kind of plays into the structure. It almost makes you wonder whether or not they're the ones that created that structure as well, because everything is built so that you respect your elder, so that they have the power. In it. And you're right, the Zanglong are probably the leaders or the ones giving the most sage advice. Um, for these courts, you know, specifically, because they have been around so long. They're also the ones that gave information and gave the Simon Bito a way to be. Um, but you're right. Um, outside of it, I don't have much to add to the particular Zonglong in that case.
0: The, uh, the Zonglong art from the beginning of the book is great. I, w- I would love to play that
1: character. <laughs> I'll add that much. <laughs> I do like the art in this book, though. By comparison to some of the art in the Krijin book, I do like it the best. However, we do have one more thing to cover, and we'll cover it very quickly while we have the ability to, which is the last changing breed, which is the Kitsune. Uh, So the reason why the Kitsune is in this book and not in any other book is because they actually, the authors that you know, Kitsune is exclusive to the Henge Yokai because of its theater, right? Every Kitsune is a Henge Yokai, but not every other thing would be a Kitsune itself. Um, And you're not going to see a separate book for them because they only exist within this one theater of existence within the Middle Kingdom for mm -hmm. the most part. They are the youngest changing breed to exist. Uh, The shortest story goes, in terms of why they are of relevance, is that there was a white rabbit that once bit upon the paw of a fox. That fox chased it back and forth. Um, It chased it all the way through Vietnam, came all the way back to Hong Kong, and back. um, Only until the fox was just completely exhausted from having chased that white rabbit. At one point, as it starts to collapse, it takes a look into a pool. Um, and notices the white rabbit is there and it follows after a white rabbit only to find out it fell and wake up before Luna. Luna wakes up and goes or li- rather Luna walks up to the, the young fox and goes like hey BTW we have things to talk about you're done being a child now you actually fulfill your role um, to the universe right the courts have need of you your people have need of you but the fox is like but wait a second I didn't even know that I was young had I known I was young I would act a little bit differently they're like well too late hmm. The time is now for you to serve. By the way, we're going to go speak to your auntie, who happens to be Gaia. What I would not suggest doing is either speaking back to her, nor look up to her. Because if you do it, you're going to be looking presumptuous, and bad type news bears is going to happen to you. Um, (laughs) The story goes, she meets with Gaia, and Gaia goes like, well, I have need of you. You're going to have to help me protect things because there are other things going on in the background. They're like, but don't you have Garb to take care of it? And they're like, yes, I do, but I need you for another purpose. So... Kitsuna, the fox being what it is, tries to trick Gaia. It's like, how about this? We'll play the game of Nike Spoonie, your mantis versus my mantis, and then whoever mantis is <laughs> falls first is the one that loses and if I win, you can let me go. And then behind her, she was creating a paper mantis and Gaia's like, yo, you know I know your cousin Luisa, right? She's like, who? Never mind. Alright, <laughs> what about, I'll tell you this secret about what's happening with this concubine and he's like, Korak's already told me that a little bit earlier this week. She's like, well, shit. Alright. Well, what if I show you these ancient magics I ain't no one ever see? And they were like, the Bastet were also here before you. Like, <laughs> shit! But can I be good at it? Right. So she was put into a corner, and at one point she goes like, "Listen, how about this? I will fight my way out, even if I die fighting. I will fight my way out so that my, my followers won't be affected by this. And you could just let us be." And uh, guy was like, "You know, that's cute and all, and I do respect the fact that you're even at your last resort, you're willing to fight, right? Which is something that Moscara would do anyway. There's still more for you to do." So the moral of the story is, uh, the Fox tries to argue once more out of it, but when she attempts to argue once more, she looks up at the hem of the Gaia's, like dress and she's able to see the wild, the weaver and the worm all going at it. This like moving picture of sorts. It's like almost looking at Vigo the Carpathian in, in Ghostbusters 2, where it starts the mind melder and she passes out, you know, the Fox before the Fox wakes up again and goes like, well, Gaia let you live. Thankfully your mind's not shattered. But the fox was like, they betrayed us all. We, it, it doesn't seem the apocalypse and what is going to happen in the future. And that's when the fox sticks them seriously. Um, and the fox was given a mission. The short version of that mission ends up becoming that they will help usher the world through the sixth age. And when they've done their service and they've done it well enough, they will know what it is that they're good at. Because so far we've mentioned to you, the fox is cunning. It's tricky. It's cunning. It's, uh, it does all these other eccentric things that every other shifter should be able to do. Just not as well or at least you don't think as well so what is the purpose of the fox so the fox's purpose is to support and make it through the sixth age and if everything goes well their people will be released by the 12th age imagine that two full cycles of servitude <laughs> but the fox can possibly live through it because as they get older they grow more tails and they could almost effectively be immortal however they do have a curse and the curse is as such, for every Kitsune that is born, someone has to pay the price with their life. It could be one parent. It could be both parents. It could be another person that happens to be close to Kitsune. But one way or another, Duna will take its toll um, to enact the curse. And I think this is more tied into, you know, mythology than anything else to kind of make the Kitsune be where they are. But um, that being the case. Go ahead, sir.
0: Well, no, no. I was just going to say, is this, suppo- is this why they're, or I guess part of why they're super rare? Somebody has to die. That's the price of of birth. Mm -hmm.
1: I I won't complain. I could, but I won't. But (laughs) you know, another thing I think in terms of how it's brought up and the way I see it is, they act as the analog for the Golden Child. Remember that old movie.
0: Yeah, I want the now. Right. Murphy, <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> and so they get to witness these things, but we also don't know the capability of what they could truly do. And I guess when they get introduced into this book, we just start seeing the possibilities of what the foxhole could do. Um but that pretty much wraps up at least the shapeshifter portion of this book itself, right? The the folks that do make up the BC court and how they'd interact with each other. However, I think we say just before we wrap up. Mike, you had some thoughts regarding the book.
0: Yeah, man. And I hate to be... uh, I hate to be the race car guy. Um, Especially because... Especially because... The book... This book does not do any of the awkward... Like you know, Theo Bell needs to have been an escaped slave and putting all of the kindred of the Ebony kingdom over in their own book and not mentioning them in literally anything else. Like, it's not like that. But I did just get, there were these persistent moments in this book where it was like, but why? For for example, for example,
2: um, Southeast Asia, in
0: particular, right? Mm-hmm. I want to say that the nations, they specifically call out as Vietnam, uh, Cambodia, Laos, and maybe it might have been one other nation that I can't remember. Um, maybe Indonesia, just did <laughs> you touch upon that as well. Well, right, right. But Indonesia, they kind of sort of exempted, right? They say, oh, no, Samae Bito are super badass. So Indonesia would be as bad, but they got the maybe Anyway they literally describe Southeast Asia as the worms sewer. Right. And these happen to be the, the, the brownest Asians I'm aware of. Also, they specifically call out uh, India as being the place where, you know, if the Gauru want to prove that their way of doing things works out, they should start here. Like (sighs) I try to ignore it. But I could not escape the sensation that they were othering dark-skinned Asians, while
2: at the same time pouring the whole continent
0: into this arbitrary box of exoticism. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's like Native Americans and white people. That's the the side over here. We're gonna sprinkle a little bit of little little bit of uh, Africa in because we have Bastet, even though you know our cons are from way off and over there and not anyway. But then when we, when we talk about the Asians in the Asian box, we still have this noteworthy division that I couldn't help, but see color lines on. And they spend a couple of pages on it. Right. And so it's like, is this just me? Is this just me being the the black guy? You can tell me it won't hurt my feelings. Uh
1: I don't think so. What I do think, though, is that I, I could see where you're coming from, but I would also put it in context to say the following. Uh, we covered this also in Kuei as well. Locations like Vietnam, Thailand, etc. It's wild out there. Why? Because it tries to play up to a couple of things. We know historically that there have been certain events that have happened in their colonization, of course, being in India. Of the fights, we could talk about Vietnam War and the war that the Civil War they had with each other before the US even got involved, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there are certain events that, and we have to imagine it. And the way that I kind of view it, because once again, this is a work of fiction. And I'm trying to find out, I'm not saying it's not without misstep, but at the same token, I'm trying to find out what would be the basis of starting it. And I would almost say that using historical aspects of why certain things have happened, or let me take that why, just that they did happen sets up the theater for why they would take effect in certain locations. So if Gar want to test themselves in India, they could attempt to. Doesn't mean they're going to come out on top, though. But it gives you the idea and that subjective voice to go, go ahead and test it. When we're talking about the worm sewer, or at least looking at the rampantness that could happen in the war, of course, you're in a location where the Weaver in the Far East and in other locations where you have these quote-unquote cities, and trust me, if you've also read Killing Streets, and we've we've done a couple of reviews in that location, doesn't make it any better. But the veneer of having cities nearby gives everyone the ability to think that urban decay is at least glamorous to the combination of just being in a location where you have no control of anything that there are killing fields out there that Bobot didn't happen that at one point or another the worm shows its many faces also dealing with the wild is the wild is the worm is it corruption is natural entropy is it just the changing of things and what about the monsters that do exist out there can it be controlled does anyone really care who really rules these types of jungles and locations where natural law takes more effect than a civilized law in terms of how it's being viewed. That's kind of how I viewed it on my particular end, or at least that's how I would run it, right? Take the best out of the situation. I'm not saying you're wrong either, to take a look at it that way, because I do see what geographically does, you know, shed a light on it, and this is something that could be improved upon in the future.
0: I mean, we could, like, we could talk about atrocity anywhere there's people. Right, they got... really awful terrible stuff that have happened between China and Japan in particular and we hold them Mm -hmm. apart like they're the special honorable Asians as opposed to the dirty sewer Asians that live right next door we don't mention them we don't mention Afghanistan at all right like the the near east as opposed to the far east (sighs) It's, well, it is to be fair, difficult for me to articulate in the short term the,
1: the dissonance. I understand. I <laughs> for our listeners, though, I can let you know that we did cover the conflicts between China, Japan, and the states in between and what types of war they had. But it dealt more with the kindred or rather I should say with the Quajin aspect of it and the wars that they continue with each other. But that actually makes good for stuff that we could have our patrons listen to at one point during our SD circle or deep dives in it because we do intend on going with it as more books start coming out especially with the year of lotus uh we will be covering more but at least we wanted to give you folks an idea and the flavor of like how we viewed the book so we did speak about henge yokai in general though objectively speaking what did you like about this book and what would you use it for i don't know what didn't you i mean obviously we know what you didn't like about it but is there anything that you would call out for things for our readers to kind of keep in mind as to why they would want to pick up this book
0: Yes, yes. Um, For all of your Werewolf the Apocalypse players um, and even for your STs, right? um, Even putting all of the flavor aside, which is some high quality flavor, by the way, um, the detail of this book is great. It's well written. It's creative. It's imaginative. But I think the most important part of this book is that it gives the despair and rage of Werewolf somewhere to go especially for somebody who might be newer to the game and is the ST for their player group, but can't necessarily see it themselves. The Hinge Yokai book, for lack of a better word, reads like the answer key to a lot of the problems that werewolf presents. Um, and for that I, alone, I think it's worth, it's worth the purchase. <laughs>
1: I agree. And I guess I'll layer on a little bit differently. It's You'll definitely have folks that want to play a different type of changing breed because those books have been out there, right? And there should be a reason to play something other than the especially if it's your flavor. But I will caution you, even though you get to play those cool other changing breeds, here's where you put it to the test. Because for as much of a veneer of politeness and amazingness and working together as it does, it's anything but, right? It's everyone having to learn to get along to get along, even if for a singular purpose. And I think that in of itself is what makes the story good. Right? So even if for that, I would probably say give it a shot. Remember that it does take place in a different theater. You don't have to be historically accurate for it, nor do you have to be very, very specific. Just be aware of the game you're playing and the setting it's taking place in. Um, I do like it for that. I do like that it introduced the Nog in this book along with the Kitsune um, for the most part because those are two things that we haven't touched upon before. And I do like that it is one of the intro stories. That, specifically, I think what always draws into me, and I, I, as I mentioned, even though I was half and half about it, it does ground me for every single book. They talk about those ages right the six spokes of the wheel and i think it's the one constant that allows me to want to take a look at stuff and this is one of the first few tastes we have especially in werewolf so barring that folks we appreciate your time we know we're a little bit lengthy of it but a book of this size and the content of it uh did require us to go over it if you have any questions comments concerns of course feel free to hit us up on discord or otherwise we're always willing to answer you and or join our community there uh but mike i want to thank you for being my co-host today i appreciate you brother Yeah, yeah, man. It's a good time. It's a good book. Likewise. Thank you, folks, and we'll catch you next time. Peace.
0: Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to support us, please leave a review or share it with friends. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.